Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your watch care, for your um, wisdom. We ask that you'll join us, guide us, direct us. I also want to um, remember uh, uh, Ralph, my father-in-law, um, who's had a stroke this week, that you will intervene in, in the circumstances and give us the wisdom and, and open up the uh, avenues of best care for him as we move forward. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson four in the quarterly in the crucible with Christ, seeing the goldsmith's face. And the last paragraph in Sabbath's lesson says, God is seeking to purify us, to refine us like gold, to transfer us, transform us into his image. That's an astonishing goal. And it seems even more astonishing that a Christ-like character is developed in us only as we pass through life's crucibles. You know, overall, I think this is very well said. Uh, God is seeking to purify us, to restore his image within us. Uh, and, and this is the core purpose of the plan of salvation for human beings, to restore the image of God. We were created to be living showcases of the glory, character, and living law of God. It was to be in Adam and Eve and lived out. That was its purpose. And that's what the purpose of humankind is. When you think, though, being created in the image of God, what comes to mind? Character. Other thoughts? Ability to love? To think? To act? To think and to do? Procreate? Procreate? Mm -hmm. Yeah? No? The ability to give of ourselves for the betterment of others. So the least significant of the ones I listed is the ability to procreate. It is an aspect of God. He is a creator, and he made us to be creators. We can create beings in our image. It was part of the design. It's an aspect of who he is. But it's the least significant one. Uh, people who uh, either never have children or are incapable because of biological impairments uh, can still be image bearers of our creator, Jesus himself, as a human being, had how many children? None, okay? And he perfectly restored the image of God in man. So while it does say something about uh, who God is, it is not one of the essentials. So the most important aspect of an image bearer to God that makes us akin to our maker, have you ever heard that statement? We are created with the, in the image of God, a power akin to that of our, have you ever heard that statement? Akin to that of our maker? What would that power be? No. That is not the power that the author that I'm re- referencing states in that moment. And without the power that the author that I'm referencing states, I think it's in book education, then you couldn't love, ultimately, truly love. You have to have this power in order to truly love. Choice or freedom. The power to think and to act. To be self-governed. To make choices. And that empowers your ability to love. So, yes, you can think and to act selfishly, too. But if you can't think and act at all, you're a robot. You're just programmed. Can you love? So, love is absolutely essential. But I think as I process through this myself, you actually can't Love if you can't think and act. Can you? Yeah. So a power akin to that of our Redeemer, the ability to think and to act or think and to choose. Will God use his power 
to actively destroy the image of God in a person? Will God use his power to actively destroy his image in us? No, I agree. No, he won't do that. Well, what happens though if people pray to God to do that? They ask him to. Would, would please destroy your image in me. Have you ever heard anybody, Lord, please, I believe in you and I want you to destroy your image within me. You ever heard anybody pray that prayer? No. Not in those words. But if you understand what his image is, can you think of some prayers people pray commonly? It's actually even taught to our students in school that actually if God were to do it, it would destroy the image of God in them. Very common prayer taught in schools, written in books. Mars Venden wrote, wrote it in his book. Take control of my life. Bingo. Father, please, you take control. I don't want to mess up anymore. You take control of the steering wheel of my life. Remember the metaphor of the steering wheel? Uh, Every time I'm in control, I wreck, Lord. Let me go to the passenger seat and you pilot and choose for me. And if the Lord were to do that, are you, st- are you developing your powers to think and to act? Are you becoming infantilized? Is the image of God in you growing? Or is the image of God in you being destroyed? What's the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Not Holy Spirit control. Not God control. He restores in us the ability to be thinkers and doers. Isn't it interesting how we can have these ideas come in that sound so holy and so righteous and people pray for them and understand while God won't use his power to actively take control of someone's decision-making for them or thinking for them. He won't do it because if he did, you become a robot or he and he destroys your individuality and you can't love You're a machine at that point. He won't do it. You're a puppet. Won't do it. But how many people, if you pray that prayer, What impact does it have on you to pray a prayer in which your heart's desire is to be passive and not an active agent for good? Does it help you develop your critical reasoning skills to think for yourself? Or you start looking for maybe if God's, I'll look for some human agent. I'll look for proof text. The Bible said it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Got a text. Do it. Look to the, 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 the church council, the creeds, the fundamental beliefs, the pastor. Somebody in authority, tell me the answer. Destroys the image of God. It's not what he wants. We're to become mature people who've developed by practice the ability to discern right from wrong. What would be the motive for such a prayer? Would that motive be a motive of primarily of knowing God personally and trusting him or fear of failure. I don't want to be, I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to make a mistake and have it come up in the judgment. I want to have somebody else be in charge. And therefore, if if I do it wrong, it's not my fault. They can't go in my book. Fear is the primary motive for that, that type of prayer. And misunderstanding God. And misunderstanding God. Yeah. Yeah. It might be from somebody who wants to be a good girl or a good boy. They don't want to be rebellious. They don't want to do bad things. 
tell me the answer, teacher. I don't want to get any, any, any red marks on my math paper. Give me the key and I'll memorize it. Give me the 28 fundamentals. I'll memorize them. I will know my doctrinal answers. But why are they? I don't know. I just know they're the right, they're the right answers. This is many people. They have no idea how to problem solve. Because they don't understand the principles of God's kingdom. They don't understand what somebody in authority told them are the right answers. And they might be the right answers. Seventh, they might be the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. It's the right answer. Why? What's its purpose? Why did God give it? What's the context? What does it do for us? How is it a blessing? Well, it doesn't matter. We just have to know the day and stop working. And we also need to make sure that people who do work get punished. Well, not by us. We just have to teach them that if they don't, God will punish them one day for their Sunday keeping. They will get a mark and they will burn. That will instill great love and trust in God, won't it? Children. The Bible is about the plan of God restoring his image in us. Taking us and helping us mature to those who have the mind of Christ, who can discern right from wrong, who become self-governed or self-controlled as the Holy Spirit finishes the work in us, writes his law, which are the motives of action, his living law that we live out because we agree and it makes beautiful sense to us and it's who we long to be, totally free, restores his image with us. But is God the only supernatural being who is working to have his image reproduced in us? Satan is also working to have his image reproduced within us. And this is the real bottom line focus and outcome of the war between Christ and Satan. It is a war for hearts and minds. These two beings, Christ and Satan, stand at the heads of two divergent systems, two antagonistic kingdoms that operate on two totally antagonistic principles or methods. There's no harmony. There's no meeting in there. There's no portion in which they both actually have the same methods and, and motives involved. It's just, it just doesn't. They're antagonistic. One is design law based on love, truth, and freedom. One is imposed rules based on lies, coercion, and, and, uh, and selfishness. Every being in the universe has to decide which side they'll be on by. How do you make that choice? Which methods you value and you choose to practice in your life and how you treat your neighbor. Do we prefer truth or deception? Do we prefer love or fear and selfishness? Do we prefer freedom or coercion, force control? Do we prefer design law or imposed rules? Do we prefer sowing and then reaping or rule breaking and infliction of punishment? It is a law, the law of worship, that we become like the God we admire and worship. If we worship a God that's like Satan in character, makes up rules, uses threats, intimidation, inflicted punishment to coerce and control, and, and call it justice, we become like that God and we'll use those methods on others and we'll feel good and we'll feel virtuous and we'll feel righteous. We're just enforcing the rules. Your conscience doesn't matter. We have a representative. We pass it. This person's enough. He's given an executive order. And if you don't, you're, and, if, and, and we're just following the law. If we worship Jesus, who would not use power to punish his crucifiers, but left them free to crucify him, then like Jesus, we present truth and love and we leave people free. And people reap what they sow 
They reap in their character what they sow into their own hearts by the choices they make. If we're being cleansed and washed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, purified and prepared as a temple for the indwelling of God via the Spirit, are we? Or are we instead being corrupted and turned in what the Bible calls the synagogue of Satan? Everyone is either a temple for God or a synagogue for Satan. The image of one of them is being reproduced in every person. You remember the, uh, the Jews who uh, in Christ's day claimed both Abraham and God as their father? You can read about it in John 8. What did Jesus directly and explicitly say to them? You're of your father, the devil. But they were certain that they were obeying Scripture. And they were certain that Jesus was disobedient to the Scripture. They had a woman caught in adultery, and the Bible, Moses' law, was explicit. You stone the adulterer. How can you disobey Scripture, Jesus? We, the Bible says, test the spirits to the law and to the testimony. If they don't act according to this, there's no light in them. We've got the law, we've got the testimony, we've got the inspired word, and you, Jesus, there's no light in you. You're a demon. That's what they said. Why? Did they have the wrong Scripture? Did they have the wrong understanding of what God meant when he said that? Did he mean something like Nerf balls, not stones? Or did he mean stones? When, when it, when, in the law of Moses, did he mean stones? Did they mean stones until they die? So were the Jews in Christ's day misunderstanding what was written in Deuteronomy? They weren't. That's exactly what he meant. Well, he meant it literally. What did they not understand? What did the Jews have wrong? They didn't have the wrong law, nor the wrong understanding of what God told them to do then. And the wrong God. There you go. That's it. They had the wrong God. And because they had the wrong God, they couldn't process. Jesus came with the right view of God. And if they listened, they would have understood why in that moment in time it was necessary for God to give them that rule. But they didn't have any interest in actually knowing God, nor understanding why love would function in that way at that point in time. No, it's a rule, and we keep rules. That's what law-keeping does. Because that's, that's who God is. He gave rules, and, and you just do the rules. There was no thinking, no reasoning, no appreciation, no character development. Calling oneself Christian... And following the creator God and believing in the inspiration of scripture, being a follower of Jesus does not establish a person as a temple for the Holy Spirit. Being baptized in the church, being a member in good standing, keeping the right day, eating the right foods, dressing in the right way, avoiding the toxic substances that circulate in society to keep your spirit temple physically healthy. None of that makes you a temple for the indwelling spirit. You can do all of that like the people who crucified Christ. Worship God in truth as Jesus revealed him to be in character and principle and methods and surrendering to him. Then he comes and writes a new law, the living law of love into your hearts, into the operating system, into the way we live and breathe and function. 
We love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as ourselves. We live out God's law and how we treat other people. We don't do this by our own strength, but we do this by our own choice. We don't do this by our own strength. We do this by our own choice. God never chooses for us. Yes or no? But we can never accomplish any victory over sin by our own ingenuity, wisdom, or power. All saving power comes from God. All truth that displaces lies and wins us to trust comes from God. All love that drives out fear comes from God. But the choice to respond to truth and love comes from us. Yes or no? And when we make the choice... God enters the sanctuary of the soul with his healing and cleansing presence, removes the guilt, takes away the shame, imbues us with new motives, new desires, new longings, longings for purity, for goodness, for love, for kindness, for honesty. And we identify with these new motives. We, and we desire and we choose to, to apply them to our daily activities and our decisions and our practices. And when we have moments of human weakness and don't do what our renewed hearts truly desire and we allow an old habit to take over or we find ourselves in a situation where in a moment of impulse we are irritated and we act in a way like we regret regret like moses striking the rock we are not cast off by god we have not left grace and gone into rebellion we grieve in our heart as moses did that we stumbled at that moment our true heart did not want to do that but we found that we were weak in that moment. And we go to God humbly, hanging our head. I'm so sorry, Lord, I let you down. Regretting our weakness, longing to overcome. And we receive again his grace and his reassurance and new perspectives and, and forgiveness and acceptance and love. And, and we're empowered and fortified so that the next time we're in that situation, we'll be less likely to stumble. The sin problem has never been a legal issue. It has always been a state of heart and mind issue. We're either reborn to love and trust, that's we have the indwelling spirit, that we become temples for the living God, and we become image bearers to God, or we're rule-keeping little Satan cultist going around articulating some religious organization or another and judging everybody else to not live by our rules and picking up stones to stone those who don't do it our way. Sunday's lesson focuses our attention on Romans 8, 29. We're going to go through this really quick because we've done it before. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be firstborn among many brothers. God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. What does it mean? Straightforward. What does it mean? God foreknows. God decides. God, you know, there's a whole church teaches. You don't have a choice. God foreknows and God predetermined who would be saved and who would be lost. Your choice doesn't actually matter. Why is that a fraudulent interpretation? It violates one of God's laws. What, what laws does that interpretation violate? The law of liberty. That's right. Without liberty, there is no love. 
Robots can't love, computers can't love, programming somebody, making them a puppet they can't love. So without liberty, there's no love. God will never violate. One of the things God is, uh, is absolutely dogmatic about, he will not waver on, is freedom of his, of his uh, intelligent beings. He will not waver on it. Because without it, there's no love. So this idea that God predetermines and you don't have a choice, it's fraudulent because it's a violation of the character, methods, principles, and eternal law of God. But then we, we can't just ignore it because we understand that, that to be true. That's how reality works. We have to be able to explain it. So what does it mean, those he foreknew? Well, what is life eternal according to Jesus? To know him. To know him. So this foreknowing isn't about cognitive awareness. God uh, has forewareness of your DNA sequences. No, it is an intimate. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave a son. Those, because God lives outside of time, he created time. He sustains time. He is not constrained to a linear existence like we are. All points with God are the same. And so in God's foreknowledge, in he foreknows those who will open their heart and have an intimate knowledge of him. And all those who know God, they open the heart and trust. And he pours his spirit in. And he conforms and transforms them to be Christ-like. It's very straightforward. It's still the outworking of reality. He heals us. That's all it's saying. Third paragraph uh, quotes uh, an interesting quote from the book Desire of Ages. It says, the very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. What does that mean? That our actions reflect who God is. But how is God's honor involved in the perfection of us? If somebody's dying of terminal disease, cancer, whatever, and a physician comes in, gives them one pill, boom, and they're, and they're instantly healed by this cure that this doctor has discovered and developed, who gets honored with the application of the remedy and the, and the curing of the terminal patient? Does the patient get the honor, or does the doctor who provide the cure get the honor? Okay. When God cures us of sinfulness and rebellion and fear and selfishness and has his living law restored so that we are righteous... We get the benefit. He gets the honor. Because he's the one who achieved the remedy and the cure through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Monday's lesson asks us to read Job 23, 1 through 10. And this is from the NIV. Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I knew, if only I could go to to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he was, uh, what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There, there an upright man could present his case before him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And then, with that in mind, that's the reference that they cited in the lesson, then... In uh, the second paragraph of the lesson, it says the following about that text. Even amid his terrible trials, Job trusted in the Lord. Despite everything, Job was determined to endure 
And one of the things that kept him persevering was gold, not a gold medal. Rather, he was looking into the future and realizing that if he held on to God, he would come out better for it. He would come out like gold. How much... Job knew of what was happening behind the scenes, we aren't told. Regardless of how much was hidden from him, he endured the refining fire anyway. No question, in my view, Job trusted God. No question. And he could not be shaken, no matter the trials and tribulations, he could not be shaken from his trust. Despite his not understanding why it was happening, he still trusted God. He couldn't see behind the scenes. He still trusted God. This is an excellent point that the lesson makes. A very important point for us on our life journeys. If we find ourselves in some difficulty that we can't see behind the scenes, Job is encouraging to us, and we should stay faithful or trust God. He's got us. But what do you think about the ending of that paragraph where it says, he endured the refining fire? I have difficulty with this conclusion. Was Job going through his trials because Job needed purifying and refining? Or was Job already settled, already sealed, already purified in character? Well, two texts to consider as we try to clarify this point. First, Job's own words in the next two verses, we just read 1 through 10. We're going to read 11 and 12. Here's your Job's own words. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So from Job's perspective, is Job's understanding that he's being purified, that he's got sin in his life that is being worked out? Is he, do, we, do we hear the, the prayer of Job like we do in Psalms 51 of David, uh, created me a clean heart, O God, against you and you only have I sinned. Uh, and, and David is actually going through a repentance process and a purifying process and he acknowledges it. Uh, do we hear that in Job's words here? No, in fact, we hear the opposite. He is saying, I haven't done anything wrong, and I want to have my moment before the judge because I'm sure he's going to exonerate me when I can tell and when we can have this conversation. However, the Bible also says that the human mind is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, and who can know it? So maybe Job is just self-deceived. Okay? I mean, we have to consider that possibility, don't we? There are many people who think they're righteous and they're not. Okay? So we have to consider that possibility. So maybe now we should look to Job 1.8. And this is God speaking. And this is what God says. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So does it sound like in Job's case that what he was going through was to refine him from sin? Not at all. Not at all. And this is a great example of the dangers of taking a passage like Job 23, 1 through 10, that the lesson referenced, out of context and using it to make a point that the text actually does not make and therefore coming to a wrong conclusion. This is how the Bible can be used with all good intentions and honest motives of heart. Not reading any ill will here. To introduce confusion and error rather than to clarify and lead us out of confusion and error. And this is why every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. 
Did you all read my blog this week? Only God is infallible. Okay? Only God is infallible. Read the blog if you haven't read it. Angelic perfection failed. You can't trust angels. Human perfection failed. Even people who are working for God, actively for him, have made mistakes and stumbled because they're fallible. Elijah ran away and wanted to die. Moses struck the rock. Paul, Paul um, went back to Jerusalem when he was warned twice not to go. Peter had to be corrected by Paul. Only God is infallible, and you can only truly be safe in knowing God for yourself and trusting him for yourself. That's where your security is. Building on the solid rock, Jesus Christ, not building on your denomination, not building on your pastor or your Bible school teacher, building on the truth and your relationship with God himself. So, many misunderstand the scriptures and how inspiration works, and they think that if you find a Bible text that says something, then because the Bible said it and Bible's inspired, then you can apply it and you should apply it without question. But that's not actually the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not a rule book. It's not a code book. The Bible is the revelation of God to man about himself and how he is addressing and resolving the sin problem. It is the, it is the, the working out of the plan of salvation is what the Bible is. It's not a code book. Yes. The very next paragraph in the quarterly says, perhaps as with Job, the heat of God seems unexplainable. Is God the one that is providing the heat, the, the melting heat, supposedly? No, this is, well, yeah, thanks for picking that up. The heat of God seems unexplainable. In the story of the book of Job, fire fell from heaven, some real heat that destroyed and consumed. You know the story. And the servant that survived came and told Job about it. And the fire is attributed to whose fire fell there? The fire of God fell. You have a Bible text. It's the fire of God. It's in the Bible. It says it's the fire of God. But if you get the whole context of what's happening to you, whose fire actually was that? Was that God's? Satan's. It was Satan's fire. Isn't it very sad that the tribulations that Job is going through, coming out from Satan, is attributed to the heat of God? It takes discernment, folks. I'm not trying to be critical, but should we ignore these ideas? Should we not clarify them? Some people think I'm attacking, attacking, attacking. Am I attacking or am I simply clarifying and asking questions and asking you to discern the truth for yourself? The Bible is an inspired record of the sin problem and God's actions in resolving the sin problem. It is a revelation of God's character and methods in contrast with those of Satan. Thus, it requires us to understand the setting, what is transpiring, why the words were spoken and to whom and for what purpose and what was the manifestation of sin in that particular setting that God's actions were designed to intervene against and to restore from. If we read the Bible as a list of rules proclamations and simply applying the, apply them blindly, then our individual development is stunted. The image of God in us is not being restored if we do that. 
And we will often use the Bible rule that we find in the Bible in a setting where it harms rather than heals because it's not the proper setting for the rule. Just like the Jews who wanted to pick up stones and stone the young woman, wanted to use the rule in a setting where it would harm and not heal, not just harm the woman. Understand, if Jesus didn't intervene the way he did there, all those who were throwing stones would have hardened their own hearts. But with Jesus' intervention, he is without sin, cast the first stone. They went home reflecting on their own characters and hearts, and the Holy Spirit had opportunity to heal. Applying a rule where it's not meant, even a Bible rule, stunts your growth and will often cause harm rather than healing. This is what a lot of systems do. They make rules, and they apply them. And if you question the rules, you're rebellious, and you should be disfellowshipped. We are created in the image of God under to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other people's thoughts. Jesus calls us into understanding friendship, John 15, 15. God wants more from human beings than the obedience of a well-trained dog. Think, let your, let, marinate on that. God wants more from human beings than the obedience of a slave. The master said it. I'm going to do it. No questions asked. Two people in the Old Testament were called friends of God. Abraham and Moses. And they both question God. The, shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what is right? Certainly you wouldn't destroy the city for 50, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10. He didn't say, oh, you're coming to destroy something? God said it, I believe it. Let's always to it. Who am I to question? He questioned. When God came, I'm going to wipe these people out and start with your kids. Start over with your descendants, Moses. No, how can you do this? Your reputation isn't going to get hurt in the earth. No, and Moses questioned. Both of them questioned something God said he was going to do. Both of them are called friends of God. I can't tell you how many preachers I've heard talk about if you, if you have faith, you don't question. That's not what God wants. He wants friends who understand what he's trying to do and will converse with him. And if you have a question, he wants you to ask it. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. Jesus was in Jerusalem about to die. According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus' last teaching hour um, before Passover is spent telling his disciples parables, including the ones about the ten virgins and the sheep and the goats. These stories are related to uh, the way we should live as we wait for Jesus to come. Thus, their relevancy to today with the signs of Jesus' soon return all around us has never been more significant. I couldn't agree more with that. This is, again, well stated. Uh, these parables are very relevant to us today. And let's unpack them just a little bit. The lesson points out that the, in the um, parable of the ten virgins, five foolish, five wise, five had oil, five didn't, that the oil is both symbolic uh, in one place of the uh, Holy Spirit and in another place it's described as being symbolic of the character of the wise virgins. And then the lesson asks, and that's why it's not transferable. You can't transfer your character to somebody else. That's why you couldn't give it. They couldn't give it and share it. And the lesson uh, then asks, in what way does the meaning of the story change depending on whether you see oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit or of the possession of character? I think the question is 
a flawed question because it sets up a either or that is is not actually in reality. Understand, every single person develops character. The only question is whether it's a Christ-like character or a satanic character, but everybody develops one or the other. Everybody develops a character. What is the only way any human being, any of us sinners, can develop a Christ-like character? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. It's the only through the power of the Holy Spirit that any of us can develop a Christ-like character. Can we develop a Christ-like character by our own initiative, our own strength, our own works, our own goodness, our own creativity, our own power, our own love? Can we do that? No. The only way we can develop Christ-like character is via the indwelling spirit who brings the new motives, the new desires, the new understanding, the new perspectives, the new insights, the godly love, the divine power to succeed. The Holy Spirit brings all this into the heart, which is Christ is wrought out in his humanity for us. We then choose to say yes. Yes, that's what I want. Yes, that's what I love. Yes, that's what I want to be like. Yes, that's the way I want to go. And we prefer the godly over the carnal. We identify with and act out in harmony with the godly, and we then receive the power to succeed in the godly. The power doesn't come from us. The desire doesn't come from us. The motive doesn't come from us. The choice comes from us. And it's a partnership between the intelligent being and the infinite God that we become one and he dwells in us. This is how we develop godly character. So the Holy Spirit, the oil, is in the lamp where the character is being developed in the lamp and then the oil of both the Holy Spirit and the character comes out through the wick and gives light. Let your light so shine before men. That's exactly right. But if you, have no ho- if you have no Holy Spirit in the lamp, then you can't give any light because you don't have a light-bearing character. So there, it's, not, it's not an either-or. It should be the same lesson because it ultimately achieves the same outcome. The light is not the light of merely the Holy Spirit shining. It's the Holy Spirit creating a godly character in you that is shining. And how about the parable of the sheep and the goats? What is it that determines whether a being is identified by God and placed in the camp of the sheep or the goats? It's a powerful parable of reality. Does God's choice make one a sheep or a goat? Or does God simply identify who is a sheep and a goat? Or a goat. Yeah. And have you ever wondered, uh, this parable actually gives insight as, as to how, before Christ returns, every single human being will make a decision for or against Christ. This has often come up. How are we going, when the gospel began to preach the whole world, how are we going, people have been born all the time, there are people in their dark and about in the jungle somewhere, and how is everybody going to actually have an opportunity to choose for against Christ and gospel workers? And right? Have you heard those arguments? I don't know what you said. Oh, you didn't know what I said? How many of you know what I said? 
you know, several. Uh, the whole argument of how can everyone in the world be given a decision? We don't have missionaries going to every person. There are people living in the jungles and, and no, no gospel workers come to them. And how can they possibly every, and there's new people being born every moment of every day uh, that haven't, how can everyone possibly be given a choice, uh, opportunity to make a choice? This parable tells you the answer. As you've done it, you've done it unto me. See, the methods that you choose to apply in governance of yourself in how you treat other people determines what law you identify with. The law of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of truth, love, and liberty, or the kingdom of the world impose rules, fear, and selfishness. And you become like uh, your choices. You solidify those laws into your character. And you either, by how you treat others, you're making for or against Christ. His kingdom and how you treat them, or the kingdoms of the world, which are all Satan's. This is how everyone makes a choice. COVID was, was an opportunity for that. As the world continues to globalize, as governments increase their coercive pressure, as liberties are removed, as lies increase, as fear and selfishness magnified, as crisis after crisis occurs, governments will add to their laws and increase their demands and pressures and control. As this happens, every person will be faced with the choice of whether to live out God's law or live out the law of sin and death, law of coercion upon others. God's law, love, truth, and liberty, man's law, Coercive enforcement of conscience against people's conscience. Wednesday's lesson turns our attention to Daniel chapter 12, and let's read the first four verses, Daniel 12, 1 through 4, and verse 10. It says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Pause. What book? The Lamb's Book of Life. What does name mean? Yeah, yeah. Do they have to have the social security number with it? No, <laughs> no it's not about our uh, legal name. The Bible name means character. Everyone whose character is found in the Book of Life, okay, whoever has been healed to be Christ-like, they're the ones who... Um, will be delivered. Continue on. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Two resurrections. All who have died through human history are only sleeping, waiting for the resurrection and the final end of the sin problem. This is a very important point to realize because all the deaths through human history are merely the sleep death. They are not the death that is the wages of sin. Even those deaths that God initiated, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Korodath and Abiram, the 185,000 Assyrians, the firstborn of Egypt, uh, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, God put many people to sleep. And every one of them is coming up in one of two resurrections. And what determines in which resurrection they came up in? The quality of their character, who they actually are. 
So if you look in the Old Testament, you see God doing this, you have to understand, well, if it's not punishing sin, because punishment for sin doesn't come after the judgment. Judgment is until the future. It can't be punishment. It has to be. It's God acting therapeutically to keep open avenue for Messiah and fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, because without Messiah, no human is saved. And that's what's being worked out in Old Testament times. Continuing on. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead, uh, and those who lead many to righteousness. Thus the star, uh, like the stars forever and ever. Those who are wise will shine like brightness forever and ever. Uh, you, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of this scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Seal up what words? What words is, is Daniel instructed to seal up? The prophecies in the book of Daniel. That's what he said, until the time of the end. And then uh, knowledge will increase. The knowledge of the prophecies that have been sealed. That's the knowledge. Not scientific knowledge. Not transportation knowledge. The knowledge of the prophecies increase. And that occurred at the end of the 1260-year prophecy, 1798. And that corresponds with the Great Awakening that led to the enlightenment, and uh, not the enlightenment, the, the Great Awakening, and the Advent perspective across the landscape of Christianity, coming out of these prophecies of Daniel. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. What will the wise understand that the wicked will not understand? Truths about the prophecies. God's methods, how he works, what he's trying to achieve through human history, the great controversy, the sin problem, uh, what Christ accomplished, the solution for it. The wise will understand reality in God's universe. The wicked won't. They'll have fantasy. Fantasy that there's no God. Fantasy we evolved from slime. Fantasy there's no male or female. Fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. Not reality. Fantasy that God works like a Roman dictator, makes up rules, and is the source of inflicted pain and suffering, and he'll kill and torture you for your disobedience. Fantasy, not reality. The lesson asks, rightly, after reading this, what is the context? And the context is Daniel 11. And Daniel 11 is the prophecy of the king of the north and the king of the south. And if you haven't read my blogs on those, I've got the links in the notes. I encourage you to go read them. But in some, the king of the south is symbolic of is symbolized in the prophecy by Egypt. Egypt is representative of, remember Pharaoh? Who is God that I should know him? These are the philosophies of the world that are godless and deny the existence of God. Paganism, mysticism, evolutionism, humanism, scientism, communism, all, the, all these types of things. All the godless philosophies, today liberalism, okay, the godless philosophies deny, deny existence. This is king of the south. King of the north is represented by both Babylon and Rome, once it became papal Rome, not pagan Rome. And if you remember when, when Nebuchadnezzar, he came, initially didn't believe in God, but after the miracle, fiery furnace, he immediately believes in Daniel's God, and he says, if anyone speaks badly about Daniel's God, let them be put to death. So now he's a believer in, the, in Daniel's God, and what method does he use? State enforcement. King of the North, religious imperialism. Those who believe in the God of the Bible, but will use the power of the state to force their way. And throughout him, human history, this, Satan has always had these two forces. All the kingdoms of the world are his. 
He has the godless group and that keeps changing and manifesting based on culture and so forth, but they're godless. Warring against those who claim a belief in God, but we use the power of the state to force their way. And these two are battling back and forth through history. In the middle of that prophecy is the beautiful land where the people of God are. They're neither the king of the south or king of the north or the king of the south. They're, both these systems, north and south, are Satan's. Do you see these two forces warring at the time of Christ when he was here on earth? Yes. King of the South in Christ's day at his crucifixion weekend, King of the South is who? Pagan Rome. Pilate and pagan Rome. They're pagan worshipers. They don't believe in the Bible of God. Who's King of the North in Jesus' day? The Jewish leadership. They believe in the Bible of God, but they will use the power of the state to coerce and punish people. And so King of the South and King of the North are fighting. Did Jesus identify with either the, the leadership of the Sanhedrin and the methods of the Jewish state or with, with pagan Rome? Did he identify with either side? How about the apostles? Did they identify with either side? No. And then after Jesus' ascension, he gives a prophecy, blending together the destruction of Jerusalem and the end time. And he gives a warning. When you see these signs, you need to leave the city, right? And, and, the, and the king of the south surrounds Jerusalem and then backs off briefly and all the Christians fled. They saw the sign, they left. And then the king of the south comes back and they have the big battle, if you remember. Jerusalem's destroyed. My personal view at this moment in time, and I may be updated with more evidence than right now, but where I stand right now, we see the king of the south and the king of the north battling still. The final movements, according to the prophecy of Daniel 11, is the king of the south attacks the king of the north. The king of the north storms out and destroys him. God's people are not in either camp. The king of the south surrounding Jerusalem, warning the people of God it's time to come out. I think the last two years, COVID mandates worldwide. When the world joined together, and churches and organizations join together to form mandates against people's consciences worldwide based on a leftist king of the south philosophy, a globalist philosophy, contrary to the kingdom of God. And the people of God should be warned, and, and it's backed off now. And the people of God should be warned not to, there's, not to flee physically. There's no place on earth you can flee physically. It's not like Jerusalem now. You can get out geographically. It's not a geographic fleeing. It is to flee with your heart and mind the systems and institutions that use those methods on their people. Get out. Do not identify and align with those people. God's people are neither in the king of the south nor the king of the north, which if you have not been I've been watching, and every day there's more. It is rising. The king of the north is being empowered. Religious imperialism, conservatism, and it's going to be crushing According to the Bible prophecy, it storms out against and takes their wealth and power and everything from the king of the south. And then Michael, the great prince, stands up that we just read about, and a time of trouble that we've never seen in history happens. But God's people, those who have left and stop identifying with these abusive and coercive and mandating systems, will be delivered. But you will be sorely tempted and this is what I think we're facing as we approach the end of time. The final movement, king of the south, tax king of the north, king of the north, tax back, so forth. 
God's people are in either one of those two camps, and God's people will find themselves tempted to join one of the two camps. The trap is not in agreeing with some principle of the two camps. That is not the trap. The trap is aligning with and employing the methods of Satan to advance some principle you might agree with. For instance, let me show you how many Christians are going to be trapped. Let's take the question of transgenderism. The king of the South is advancing a lie that there's no male and female. That the concept of man and woman is a made-up concept. That our gender does not actually originate an objective reality. And thus, any person, by merely choosing, may make a claim contrary to objective reality and declare their gender to be whatever they wish it to be. But this is so obviously false, it becomes silly for any thinking person and reveals that the real assault is not on gender, it's on the image of God and man. The real assault of these movements is to destroy critical reasoning and thinking, to get people to suspend uh, thinking and accept fantasy. That's the real assault. It's on the image of God to think and to act. That's the real assault. It's not actually on gender. It's using a an, an obvious distortion of reality. For instance transgenderism and they want to transition from male to female you understand you cannot take a transcontinental flight if there are not continents right you can't transition from male to female or female to male if there is no male or female get your mind around what i just said nobody actually ever thinks Male and female, man and woman, are not constructs made up by people. They're objective realities. And there are real people who have real gender confusion because there are real genders. And they're confused about them. That's real, too. We must stop letting people who deny objective reality, who live in fantasy, be the barometer of our thinking. It is destructive and it's unhealthy to the individuals that are doing it and to society at large. And it destroys the image of God in man and it's part of the end time movements of the king of the south to destroy critical reasoning skills. There, are, there is male, there's female, and there's people with gender confusion and those suffering with some form of gender confusion need our compassion, our understanding, our love, and not our condemnation. We're not condemning any person suffering with gender confusion at all. We are condemning the philosophy that is based upon people who have gender confusion, and that becomes the standard of normality. That philosophy lets base normality on people who have some problem that caused them to be confused, and that becomes the new normal. That philosophy we're condemning, not the people. In the same way, people who have blindness... And we make their blindness the standard of our driving tests. That would be silly. Or you make a blind person the, uh, the standard for your color scheme in your painting of your new house. That makes no sense at all. We don't condemn a blind person. Never, never grace to them. But they certainly don't have any basis upon which to be determining color schemes. And people with gender confusion should not be the standard for determining what healthy sexuality is. 
They cannot do it. It's not possible. Understand. The godless in society are, punish, are, are pushing in irrational ideas that are inciting outrage in people. And as in some jurisdictions, female children are required to share bathrooms with biologically male children who identify as female. This is outrageous to many parents. Or worse, in the news this week, and I put the link in the, so I'm able to check me out on this, a school board member in, a, in Washington State, known for advancing King of the South agendas, announced as a school board member, announced that she will be taking 9 to 12-year-old students to adult store to teach them about human sexuality in more graphic detail than I can actually say in a class like this. It's revolting. Uh, I put the link there. You can read the story. 9 to 12-year-olds. These types of behaviors from the king of the south are so outrageous, they tempt the good people to join with the king of the north, not to simply restrain destructive behaviors, which is a righteous thing that we restrain and hold back people from harming others, but to actually ag- aggressively storm out and, and hurt those and take, and, and take from them. That's going to be the temptation. We are right to recognize the truth of God's creation. He made them male and female. We are right to recognize the healthiest relationships are loving marriages of a man and a woman who love God and each other more than self. We are right to recognize the healthiest families in which children do the best and grow up with the, uh, to be most successful are families led by a biological male father and a biological female mother who practice the principles of God and love each other and teach them the truth of God's kingdom. This is unequivocal. The multiple studies show this to be true. But we would be wrong to coerce people to conform to our way of living. The balance in the world, in this world of sin, are to create spaces in which our liberties do not injure those around us. We don't affirmatively harm people as a defense of our own liberties. That's the principle of Romans 14. Everything is, le- uh, is lawful, but not everything's expedient, Paul says. You're free to eat whatever food you want in the market, but if you're going to harm your brother, don't do it. And the problem with liberalism and what you see coming out of the left is they don't simply want to be left alone to live their lives the way they want. They want to force everybody else who doesn't agree with them to live our lives in harmony with theirs. And it violates the principle of liberty. They want to force your children to use the bathroom with a biological person of biological opposite sex or even room as a 14-year-old female to room with a 14-year-old male on a school trip because that 14-year-old male identifies as a female. And so there is an outrage that's rising. That's, that's flaming the king of the north. And the people of God are not found in either one of those camps. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be an almost overwhelming t- temptation. Because it's right to stand for these principles. It's the method that we employ in advancing them that is the trick or the trap. I wish we had time to get into in fact, we're going to close with this. I'm going to do it real quick. Thursday's lesson, it says uh, in, uh, let's see, the first paragraph, Thursday's lesson, it says, a song goes like this. I am a rock. I am an island. Have you ever felt 
like, like that, wanting to stand alone. You may even heard people say, well, my walk is with God in a private affair. It's not something I want to talk about. Uh, and then uh, this week I wrote the blog I already mentioned, Only God is Infallible, and about how humans can fall and stumble. And I closed the blog with these two paragraphs. I'm going to share this with you. As we approach the final moments before Jesus returns, the Bible warns of terrible times, troublesome times, distressing times. Our fears will be inflamed and our worst anxieties aroused. Everything that we have built our safety upon will be threatened. And it is when our earthly securities are removed, when every, every single earthly support is stripped away, when our bank account is empty, our home is taken, our liberty is destroyed, our family members abandon us, our friends betray us, our church rejects us, and we feel all alone that we will either be standing on the rock, Jesus Christ, or collapsing into ruin and despair. Only those who have developed a personal living faith in Jesus, who know God for themselves, who trust their lives, fortunes, families, and futures to the infallible creator God, will be found standing firm. All those who have trusted in other humans, in dynamic speakers, and church leaders, and politicians, will sadly discover they have placed their trust in the fallible. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are infallible and that Jesus Christ is a solid rock and we can safely put our entire self, strength, soul, mind, heart, family, future, fortunes, everything on Jesus and he will never let us down. As these times are coming upon us, Lord, we see so many things that we have felt safe in, our governments, uh, the liberties that were established in our Constitution, uh, our church, and what it has historically stood for. We see so many of these things being shaken, Lord. But you will never be shaken. To the degree that we have placed our, our faith or security in anything other than you, help us identify it and shift our loyalties, our devotion, our securities away from the things that are fallible and back onto you, the infallible creator God, we pray in your holy name. Amen.